Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to tune in to this week's message. It's so good to see you here this morning. My name is Pastor Craig, and if I have not had the opportunity to meet you, we just want to say how thankful we are that you're with us this morning. We're so excited about all that God's doing here in the life of Dwelling Place. It's been an exciting, very, very exciting, thrilling few weeks um, as we finished up our February series called Fighting for Your Family. God ministered and God spoke to people. You know, it's so amazing that when, when God places God's word in your mouth, you speak with the same power that created the cosmos. Do you know that? The same power. And uh, as God's word has been coming forth from this, uh, from this church the last few weeks, people have been uh, transformed as they're hearing God's word and put it into a practice. And so we're so excited about all that God's doing, love hearing all the wonderful testimonies, certainly want to continue to hear those from you all. We are, as you heard already this morning, beginning a brand new series this morning called uh, Missions March, Missions March. And that's going to lead up to Easter. So Easter is coming up at the end of the month on March 27th. We're doing a, a kind of interactive worship experience called Live Again. And we want you to pick up some invites on the way out today. And um, also uh, just to begin to pray and believe that God is going to not only draw people to himself, but people would be born again. Uh, those who are born again would become greater disciples, stronger disciples in their faith. And uh, we're going to believe for just an incre- incredible harvest of souls over the next few weeks. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to look in just a few moments. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in, you can raise your hand. And the ushers there in the back would be uh, so willing to, to put one in your hand. And it's just a guide to help us this morning as we move through the Word of God. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 15, okay? Verse 15. Before we get there, let me just give a couple of words uh, or comment, I guess, or commentary about this series. I want you to know from the outset, this is not just a four-week series on expanding our church. Now, there will be bits and pieces of that throughout this next few weeks. I'm going to introduce some new mission trips next week, some new initiatives. But I want you to know it's not just a series on our plan to expand this church. This is a series on what we believe scripturally is God's blueprint for kingdom expansion. Amen? And it's incredibly important for us and for for you to understand as believers the intensity that God has to expand his kingdom on the earth until the return of his son Jesus Christ. The the magnitude is, is outlandish. It's so extremely important for you to understand this subject because you have a role to play. Not only do the five-fold ministers or vocational ministers have a role to play, but you have a role to play. I have a role to play. Now, as we move into this message, there's kind of two ways you can go with this message. You can either listen to it and heap condemnation on yourself and, and say, oh, I'm just awful or, or I'm, just, you know, I'm, just, I'm just this way or I don't do enough or I'm a horrible Christian. You can think that way or you can think this way. No matter what I've done for the Lord or no matter how long or how many years I've followed Jesus Christ... I can still wake up every morning and go a little bit further, and I can give him just a little bit more. Now, if we adopted that mindset this morning, can you imagine how forcefully God's kingdom would advance here in the earth? I mean, it would be amazing. 
And so let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 15. Notice, the Bible says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. Interesting. Notice this. He said, But our hope is that as your faith increases, your faith, he's talking about not only those in the church there in Corinth, but he's talking about yours. You sitting right there this morning in that black seat, he said, you individually and us corporately. He said, notice, I wish, notice, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence, everybody say influence, influence, among you may be greatly enlarged. Notice that. Your faith. It's interesting to me that as your faith increases, notice what's predicated on your faith increasing, that the power of this church and the power of this church's influence enlarges. That's pretty amazing. Your personal faith increases in this church our influence becomes enlarged. Now, why is it enlarged? Why is your faith, why is God interested in your faith increasing so that our influence can be enlarged? Here it is. So that, that's a henna clause in Greek. In other words, all of that was spoken in, in order that this would happen so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Notice, your faith increases that our church's influence is enlarged. So why? That the gospel would be preached in lands beyond us. That's missions. That's God's heart. So listen, God in this new year, he's going to stretch your faith. You know, even if you are talking about physiologically, we are, really have to stretch our muscles. If not, uh, it's proven that by the age of 50, every year after 50, your muscles will shrink by 2% each year. Now, I don't know anybody I talk to that wants to shrink and shrivel. God, this year, he's wanting to stretch our faith. We're going to stretch our faith in 2016. I'm praying over these next four weeks that your faith would be stretched. Let me give you an illustration. And I'm going to tell you from the outset, this is a dangerous illustration for those maybe in the room who have shrinking faith. Or a faith that really is not very large. The current stat in our world right now is there's a little bit over 7.2 billion people. That was last March. We went over 7.2 billion people. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but out of 7.2 billion people, how many people on the earth are lost? Well, we, it's hard for us to understand these numbers, but I'm talking about any type of Christianity. We're talking about Roman Catholics. We're talking about charismatic Catholics. We're talking about evangelicals, Protestants. We're talking about those Christians that are front slid, back slid. And you put them all together, and there's about 2.5 billion believers on the earth. That means there are still about 4.5 billion people that are not even remotely saved. They're on their way to a Christless eternity. Now, for you to understand, you know, 4.5 billion people, that just sounds like a big number, right? We, it's like the, you know, national debt. We don't have any idea what that number really looks like. And so I want to give you a little illustration to visualize. Visualize how far would 4.5 billion stretch? Well, if you were to take the first person and put them right down here in the altar, and you were to make a line of people that were so tight, shoulder to shoulder, that only a sheet of paper could fit between them, you would come out of this altar, go down that row, you would go out the back door, you would go, as you would imagine, go directly east, and you would go and land all the way over in Savannah. If you were in Savannah, you could pick up your cell phone and call the first person in this line right here in the altar, and talk to him on the phone, and you would be standing in the same line. 
Well, that's not enough. If we could build a land bridge across the Atlantic Ocean, you could build a land bridge. That line would cross the Atlantic Ocean, land over in France. But that would still be enough. You'd go all the way across Europe, all the way across Asia, and land in Japan. You would get to Japan. And if we could build another land bridge across the Pacific Ocean, I've flown over it many times. It takes about 12 hours to get over it. You could put people shoulder to shoulder. They would cross the Atlantic Ocean, land back on our west coast in, in California. And then they would come all the way back across the contiguous 48 states. And they would come right back in this back door right here. We could open the door. The line would come right on in here. And this first person would touch the shoulder of the last person and they would be standing in the same line but 4.5 billion people would not just make it one time around the earth they would not just make it two times or five times or 10 times or 15 times or 20 times or 25 times not even 30 times or 35 times but it would wrap around the earth 37 times Listen to me, church. That's why you can't get fixated on anything that's not eternal. You can't afford to get fixated on anything that's not eternal. You know, if you look in the world today, it's only churches that have missions vision and a missions mindset that are growing. And the Lord wants you to learn how to stretch your faith. That's why the title of this message this morning is Missions Mindset. How, how do you stretch your faith? Well, you stretch your faith with two things. First of all, you stretch your faith with a need. With a need. Now, most of us don't want a need, do we? <laughs> You're like, Pastor Craig, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. But you know what? Every now and then, a need comes into our life. You know what I believe? I believe this morning that some of you have a big need. Some of you have lost a job. Others of you have difficulty at home. Some of you have kids away from God. Maybe it's grandkids that are away from the Lord. And let me ask you a question. Do you know what, what that need has forced you to do? That need in your life has forced you to stretch your faith. It has. You know, generally, if we don't have a need, we don't stretch our faith. You know what I'm saying? If you're not sick, you don't know where the verses in the Bible are about healing. But when you get sick, talk to a person who's got cancer. Talk to a person who's got an illness that's chronic. And they know every verse in the Bible about healing. They know in 1 Peter 2 and 24 that by his stripes are ye healed. They know the Isaiah 51 that, that, that he literally took 39 straps on his back for our healing. They know the promise. But if you honestly look at us today in the church, most of us and most Christians, they don't know the promises of God. It's like the, uh, the man who needed a promise. Have you ever heard the story of a man who needed a promise? So he opened up his Bible and he just flipped through the Bible and he put his finger down on a text and it said, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, he didn't like that promise too much, as you can imagine. So he flipped the Bible again to another one and he put his finger down and it said, Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> well, he didn't like that one too much. So he turned again and he put his finger down again and it said, Thou doest, whatever thou doest, do quickly. Now, now, there's a better way to find promises if you have a need. If you got a need, ask someone. Go to one of your pastors, one of your leaders, one of your elders and say, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. But, but this is the year that God will stretch your faith. And how we stretch your faith? He'll stretch your faith when you have a need. Imagine Jesus there at Bethsaida, right off the Sea of Galilee, the, the, the Sea of Gennesaret, right there in the Galilee region. And Jesus is there and he's with his disciples at Bethsaida. And there were 5,000 men. There were about 10,000 people, men, women, and children included. 
And Jesus looks at his disciples. The disciples come to him and say, Jesus, we don't have enough food. It's getting late in the evening. I want you to send the disciples away to the town so they can get food. And he said, uh, nope. He said, you give them something to eat. That seemed impossible. That's a need. And the Bible says that when that need was expressed, Philip shrunk back. His, his faith was, was paralyzed. He was not able to move forward, but there was another disciple. His name was Andrew. He was the younger brother, older brother of Peter. And he finds a little young lad with a, a Ninja Turtle lunchbox who has five loaves and two fish. And he brings him to Jesus. And, and he looks at Jesus and says, hey, uh, I don't have much, but what I have to you, I give to you. And the Bible says that God used that five loaves and two fish to feed all of the people that were gathered together. And they had 12 basketfuls left over. Notice that. What I've learned about a need is that a need attracts the resources to take care of that need. If you have a need in your life and you'll get your faith turned loose in the midst of that need, what you'll find really quickly, like look at that story. You see the need was actually the trigger of the blessing. The blessing came as a result of the need. So quit resenting every need in your life. Whatever need. And I'm, folks, I'm speaking from personal experience this morning. When you move into seasons where you got needs that you've never had, God is using the need to stretch you individually so you'll be bigger in faith internally. God wants to stretch your faith. When you have the need, friends, it starts attracting the resources to take care of the need. So not only does God enlarge your faith through a need, but he enlarges your faith through a dream. God stretches your faith with a dream. Now, a dream is the Holy Spirit's language of telling you your future. Yep. Uh, God will begin to give you a snapshot of your future. He gives you a snapshot, a picture, a mental picture. See, in dreams start in our heart, don't they? But I'm telling you, the power of a dream will stretch your faith. The dream itself is an amazing, amazing thing. There was a mega church pastor. This mega church pastor has literally led one of the largest churches in the, in the world. And he died just a few years ago of Parkinson's disease. But I'm just telling you his story. It's not I made, not to make this up. This is his words. He was lying in the hospital with Parkinson's disease, dying. And he tells her the story. He asked the Lord, he said, what am I doing in here? And he said, God so clearly spoke back to him. And he said, uh, I can't speak to you anymore. He said, what do you mean you can't speak to anymore, God? And he said, what, what do you mean? He said, God spoke to him and said, no. I only speak in the language of dreams and visions. And you aren't receiving anymore from me. All you're doing is just circling the wagon. Whew. Wow, God's speaking through dreams and visions. In fact, that is the language of the Holy Spirit, dreams and visions. Joel 2.28, promise I will pour out my spirit in the last days upon all flesh. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams the way I know I'm still young as I see visions. God said, I will pour out my spirit on handmaidens and hand servants. God will literally, uh, he will just rip every old wineskin. And God says in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. That young men would see visions. That your daughters will probably Oh, dear God, I'd long for the day and dwelling place movement where we got children that are five, six, seven years old, three, four, five. We got young women, nine, 10, 11 years old, where our daughters are standing up and prophesying in Jesus' name. That they are declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So when we get up and we pray, 
prophesy the testimony of Jesus. What does Jesus say about this situation? Oh, let it be so, God, in our church. Lord, raise them up in our day and age like never before. But listen, without dreams and visions, you're starting to shrivel. You're starting to shrivel. Whenever your memories become larger than your future dreams, that's the moment a life begins to die. Fulfillment, fulfillment in your life. Lester Summerall was 80, I think he was 79 years old, powerful man of God. Most of you know Lester Summerall. And he was, he was sitting down in a restaurant in Louisiana with a pastor friend of his at 79 years old. A time when most people are hanging it up. They're getting ready in the twilight years. The afterburn of life. And at 79 years old, the Holy Spirit began to burden his heart. And he was in a restaurant crying his eyes out. One of his friends said, what, what, what's going on? And he said, you know what? The Holy Spirit just gave me a vision. And I began to see that there are Christians around the world that are starving. You know what that man did? He set out at 79 years old when most people would never take on a new endeavor. And he set out to, to buy a C-130, a big plane. We're talking about millions of dollars in a ship. And all of a sudden they begin to ship supplies into Guatemala and parts of Africa. And five years later he would go on to his reward. But he said these words... He quote, he said, fulfillment in life comes from building the house, not living in it. That's powerful. Oh, the excitement that comes when you begin to get in the middle of God's dream and vision for your life to see it built. Oh, you see, when you move into your house, it's not fun anymore, is it? Sitting there with 500 cable television channels in your lazy boy. Nothing exciting about that, but building. Oh, the walls are going in. God says, listen, I want you in March to get a fresh dream from the Holy Spirit. I want God to so speak to you and burn wherever destiny's laid dormant for a while. I pray that God by His Spirit begins to awaken dreams in your heart. Oh, I know some of you received dreams and prophetic promises years ago, but I'm praying that God who started that dream, that that dream is still in heaven. And God says that that dream will speak and God will accomplish it in your your life and I'm praying that something impossible a dream that seems impossible to a man would ignite in your heart like never before so you can either sit there in church all your life sit there and shrivel in a pew or you can stretch your faith God wants to stretch your faith with a need and with a dream so I want to look at Today, the three elements of an essential or what we call a missions mindset. What three areas or, or, or elements are, are necessary in a missions mindset? We're going to address three in today that I believe that God says if, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a mindset you must have. Most of the ladies in here, you know that whole phrase, must have, right? With the boutiques and must have handbags and must have shirts and must have spring dresses, right? See, but when men talks about must have, we're talking about things that, that you really just desire. But when God says it's, a, it's essential, God says to all of us, you really need to have this. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning to two spots, Luke chapter 11 and James chapter 2. Say, Craig, what's the first element of a missions mindset? You see it there on your card in front of you. But the first element of a missions mindset as a follower of Jesus Christ is this. Number one, neutrality must never be an option. Neutrality must never be an option. Another way we could say that is I will never be neutral. Now let me define neutral for you this morning and then I'll give you scripture. I want to, if you can allow me to do so, to use the vehicle that you used to get here today. What is neutral? Well, neutral is that gear that is not stuck in park, but it's also not in a gear that allows it to move independently forward. 
That's what neutral is. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but God hates neutral. He hates it. Yeah, Craig, that's a strong word. Yeah, but did you not know God hates things? Proverbs says there are things he detests. He hates it. It's a strong term. There are things that God hates. You say, what do you mean, Craig? Yeah, the Bible calls it lukewarm. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but look at verse 15. The Bible says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. He said, I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, God says, out of my mouth. Now, I don't know if God is being literal or figurative about that spitting thing out of his mouth, but I really don't want to find out. Come on, somebody. How how do I make sure that I'm never in a situation where I can be spit out of God's mouth? Here it is. Never be neutral. Never be neutral. Why does neutral make God so mad? Let me tell you, lukewarm Christianity makes God so mad for this reason. Because neutral is smart enough to not stay stuck in part but not willing enough to get in gear to go anywhere on God's behalf. Yeah, that's right. Smart enough to to not stay stuck in park. I'm not going to be here, but not willing enough to get in gear to do anything on behalf of God. Uh, that's, That's American Christianity. That's neutral Christianity. And a neutral relationship with Jesus is one where he just does all the work. Now, I know he carries the bulk and all of the weight. In salvation. But listen, how would that work out in marriage if it was a one-sided relationship? Well, listen, one-sided relationships end all the time, don't they? Why? Because truth be told, nobody wants one. God says you're co-laborers. The future is yet to be written. He's called us to serve alongside of him, to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Neutral. God hates it. Here's another reason I think God hates neutral because neutral doesn't stay stuck. What do you mean, Craig? Well, how could Jesus, right there, we just read it. How could Jesus say, I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm? Well, here's why. Because when you are in neutral, you can be pushed anywhere anyone wants to push you. For instance, if a car's in neutral, I can get behind you and I can push you forward if I want to. But someone else can get in front of you and push you backwards. God hates neutral. In Luke chapter 11, I think it was one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Luke chapter 11. We're going to look in verse 23, but listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Listen, listen. Part of the danger of neutral Christianity is we think all we have to be is for God. Just, just, just have to be for God. Just don't get in his way. Just, just be for God. Just believe in God. Well, listen, Jesus says that's not enough. It's not enough just to be for God. Let me show you Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus speaking. He said, anyone who isn't with me, notice the preposition there, with. He didn't say for. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Woo! I want to read you one of the most dangerously neutral verses in the Bible. Mark chapter 9 verse 40. Jesus speaking. Here's the context. These men were casting out demons in Jesus' name. But they weren't a part of the disciples group. So the disciples go to him and say, hey, you got to stop doing that. And they come back to Jesus and say, hey, man, this guy's not in our group. And he's casting out demons. And, and we told him to stop. And Jesus says, no, boys. Don't tell him to stop. And he says this in verse 40. He says, anyone who is not against us is for us. 
Notice that. Anyone who is not against us is for us. Here is the danger of neutral Christianity. We begin to think that we are allies as long as we are not against. But that's not true, folks. Listen, we got to understand Jesus' words. Look what he said in Mark 9, 40. Jesus doesn't say, anyone not against me is with me. No, he said, anyone is, who is not against us is for us. But if you go on to Luke 11, verse 23, he says, but anyone that is not with, notice that, with me, opposes me. And he goes even further and says, anyone not working with me is actually working against me. Folks. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around opposing Jesus to his face. I just don't ever see myself encountering Jesus, walking up to him and punching him in the face. And yet that's exactly what that word oppose means. It is, it is, it is coming to Jesus. I just can't see that. But Jesus is saying, Craig, if you aren't with me, it's the equivalent of you walking up on the street and punching me in the face. You're against me. And son... If you're not working with me, you're working against me. It's not enough to be just for God. You have to be against what he's against. And what's funny, folks, is, is we understand this as humans. I want to prove it to you. We understand this concept of, of against. We understand this concept of opposing. For instance, I'm a Tennessee fan. I'm a huge Tennessee fan, folks. Huge. Rocky taught to the day I die. I'm also a Duke fan, which was not good last night. As you know, North Carolina beat us one out of two. They beat us in Cameron Indoor Stadium. But you know what? I'm a Tennessee fan. I'm believing this is my year. So I, I talk trash, you know, every offseason until about the third game into the season, right? And then I got to backpedal every time. I believe this is our year. But listen, as a Tennessee fan... It's inherent in me that I hate certain teams. You all understand this, right? If you root for one team, that automatically means you don't just root against other teams, but you hate other teams. For instance, if you went to UGA and I get up here this morning in my orange and white and preach, you want to punch me, right? If I get up here this morning and you're a UNC fan and I wear the true blue, not that Kentucky trash or, or UNC sky blue, but I'm talking about the true blue, that's right, that Duke blue, then you're going to want to punch me in the face. Why? Because here's the point. We understand opposition, that when we are for one team, it automatically means we hate other teams. Well, listen to me, church. If we are in neutral, it doesn't just mean, well, oh, I love God's team, I'm for God. No, what it means is that I'm not really against the team that opposes God's team. I'm in the middle. I'm not against what Satan is doing in the, in the nation around me. I'm not against if I'm just neutral. I'm not against what he's doing to destroy a generation. I'm not against what he's doing in drugs and alcohol and imprisonment and binding people day after day. I can't afford to be in neutral. God says, pick a side. Choose a side. Elijah told the prophets of Baal, how long will you limp between two positions? You got to pick a side. If you're not the same on the inside as you are on the outside, you're not on either side. God says, I can't stand neutral. Think of it this way. How many of you have seen that crazy guy with the wire stretched across the Grand Canyon? He walks with that 20-foot pole in his hand, right? He did it over the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls. Now, has anyone ever woke up one morning and thought, you know what I feel like doing this morning? I feel like stretching a rope a wire across the Grand Canyon, tiptoeing across with a 20-foot pole in my, my hand. 
Has anybody ever woke up and thought, no, 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 said ever wake up thinking that way. Why is that not a bright idea? Because it's crazy. It's crazy. But let me tell you something. It's just as crazy to spiritually be stuck and neutral. It makes absolutely no sense. God says, pick a side. Just don't be in neutral. Well, Craig, how do I know that I'm not just for God, but I'm actually with God? How do I know that I'm with God and what God's doing? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. I think Jesus addresses it perfectly in Luke 11, 27 and 28. In Luke 11, 27 and 28, this is a powerful compliment that they're, they're paying to Jesus and his mother Mary. But notice what Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 27. The Bible says, as he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came, and the breast that nursed you. Notice that. One of the highest compliments you could pay someone was that right there. One of the ways in the ancient Near Eastern world to receive the highest honor in life was to produce godly children, to have a godly legacy. And as you grew in older age, you received more and increased honor and blessing in your old age if your children turned out godly. And I believe personally this woman was standing there looking at her own wayward son in the face and saying to Jesus, Hey, blessed are you because your mama took care of you. Blessed are you because your mama was, was the one who... Who raised you in the fear and admonition of God? And you would think that Jesus responds, thank you. But listen, here he goes again. Listen to Jesus' response. Man, so powerful. Verse 28. Jesus replied, he said, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. You realize what Jesus was saying to this woman as a son? Yes, I am grateful my mother gave birth to me. But as the son of God, I am grateful that Mary got a word from God and gave God the womb that he personally asked for. God asking for something specific. How do I know I'm not just for God, but I'm with God? The answer is simple. My actions. My actions. My behavior, which leads us to point number two. Of the missions mindset. Number one, I, I can't be in neutral. Neutrality must never be an option. But number two, I must do something. I must do something. Have you ever noticed that, that kids get away with doing nothing? I mean, come on. Have you ever thought about this before? It's an intriguing thought. Like, when's the last time a young father went into his four-month-old baby nursery? Baby's nursery. And he, he walks in there right before bedtime. And the baby's crying. And whining and he goes in and he says excuse me son i know you're trying to get to sleep but uh i don't know if you know this or not but uh mm, there are, uh, are actually some dishes there in the kitchen still from where we did dinner tonight and uh, uh mom your mom and i we would just really appreciate if you'd stop being so selfish all the time and crying and always having to have milk and if you wouldn't mind just to kind of crawl up the side of your crib there and if you crawl on into the kitchen and, and do those dishes for us yeah, just get them taken care of and then you can go to bed tonight right no dad has ever done that, nor any dad probably will ever do that. Why has that never happened? Because that child is too young to carry that responsibility, right? And this is what Paul says in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, there it is, I put away childish things in other words, it's completely understandable and acceptable as a young child to carry little to no responsibility, right? But when I grew up, he said, I put away childish things. Do you know one of the most dangerous things that could ever happen in a family? It's when a 20-year-old behaves like a 2-year-old. Come on. 
Mom and dad's still paying for every bill, 20 years old. I'm not trying to bash anyone today, but, oh, I can't get a job because i got to study for school. Well, then why are your grades? Why are you still making C's, right? I mean, that's killing America. It's called the principle of reductionism or delayed adolescence. we got people who are 40 years old paying six hours of Xbox a day. It's delayed adolescence. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And in the same way a parent would never expect a two-year-old to clean up the dishes, however, there are certain uh, responsibilities that every adult is expected to carry I'm going to go a step further you know one of the most dangerous things that could ever happen in a church is when someone who has walked with God for 20 years is still behaving like someone who has known him for 20 minutes that's what neutral, neutral Christianity looks like that's what neutral Christianity looks like come on you know people like that neutral Christians are those Christians who have been Christians for 25 years but they don't have 25 years of experience they have one year of experience repeated 25 times because they won't learn the right lessons that God's trying to teach them they repeat the same deal and they live in the same habitual pattern of sins and they never grow up into the full measure of the stature of Christ they never grow up into the full measure of who God has called them to be let me say this. If you've just given your life to Christ, and there are people in our community who have done that, let me, let me just tell you, if you've just made him Lord recently, let me tell you what we as a church expect of you. Very, very little. You hear me? Very, very little. Other than you step of obedience to water baptism. But one of the things we expect and one of the things we know will happen is when we hear you talk, we're going to hear you talk a whole lot about Jesus. If you've recently come to Christ, I'll bump into you after a gathering, not seeing you after a few weeks, and you'll have a Bible in your hand, and you'll jump in my face and say, Pastor Craig, I was reading the book of Romans this week. Did you know Romans chapter 8, verse 38, 39, that God said that neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation, visible or invisible, were able to separate from the love of God that's in Christ? And you'll say, hey, did you know what the book of Romans says about the Christian life? And you'll just, almost as if I have never read the Bible before. Why? We expect that of you because we all know what it's like to fall in love. For the first time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what it sounds like. You are gushing out your mouth. As a new believer, you are gushing out your mouth. And as a new believer, we don't expect you to carry the spiritual weight of this church. That's what Paul's saying. It's acceptable. It's understandable when you're a child to act like a child. But having said that, I think y'all know where I'm going with this. That will never be our expectation for those of us in the church who have walked for many years with the Lord. Craig, are you saying that those of us who walked with the Lord for many years, we shouldn't talk about Jesus as much as new believers? No, I'm saying the exact opposite. The longer we walk with God, the stronger our talk is of God. The longer we walk with God, the more we grow in love with Him. That's how it works. And I don't know about you folks, but the more I love someone, the more you'll hear me gush about them in public. But that's not all. That's not all. There's activity I believe God expects each of us to be involved in the longer we walk with Him. So here's what we expect from those who've walked with God. If God's called you to make this your church home, if God's called you to make dwelling place your church, here's what I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. If God calls you here to make this church your home, it isn't just so you can come here. It's because there is something He wants you to do here. That you wouldn't seek to be served by the church, but you would seek to serve as His church. And I'll do a message later in this series about this. But there are two arenas that God has called you to light it up for His kingdom. One is out there, the other is in here. God wants you to light it up out on the streets, and He wants you to light it up inside the church. And if God calls someone to make a church their home, it's not just so they can be fed. It's so they can help others, feed others, serve others. I must do something.
I must do something. You know, for many, many years in my life, most of you, I think, in the room could probably finish this illustration because you've probably heard the same thing. I would hear people who would be, you know, professional church shoppers. I'm not talking about people who are going to find a place and seeing where God lives, but I'm talking about people who are professional church shoppers. The bunny hop approach. I like something in this church, and so I like to worship in that one, and then I like this and preaching, and so they never, they never throw their roots down anywhere. And I would hear people say this all the time, and I always thought it sounded like a valid reason. They would say things like, hey, uh, yeah, I can't stay in that church anymore because I'm not being, and what do they say? I'm not being fed there. I'm not being fed there. And I used to always think that was such a valid reason until I read Proverbs chapter 26, verse 15 one day. And the Bible says, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Oh, God, that hit me like a ton of broke. Maybe it's that you're coming to church and the gospel feast is being laid out on this altar every day. But maybe you are too lazy to bring the spoon back to your mouth. You know I got two kids, right? One of them is six years old, one of them is three years old. And when they were both young, here's how you fed them, right? When they go through a season of life, they don't want to eat a lot. You do all kinds of creative things, right? So here's what I do. I get Marley up or get Knox up, and I would get them in their high chair and, and put their beer ball and set them up next to the kitchen table. And then I'd get out the, you know, the, the uh, baby food, which is, by the way, have you ever thought about how nasty? You know, you're mixing asparagus with cucumbers, like 14 different fruits and vegetables. And you, you mix it all up in puree form, and then you get a you spoon and dip it down in it, and then you... You look at your baby with big eyes and you get the you get the spoon and you say, All right, here come Ed Payne, here come Ed Payne, and you go and you're between your legs. Ah, open wide. And then they take it and then they smile and laugh and giggle, right? You know, here's probably what is wrong with our churches today. We got believers who follow Jesus for 25 years. And every single morning, they come in on a Sunday morning. And we got to look at them. And they expect the pastors to look at them and say, Hey, open your mind. Here come Epang. I don't want to make it too much. See, it's time for us as a movement. Come on, somebody this morning. It's time for us to stand up and throw off of our high chair and take off of our bib and learn to feed ourselves. It's time for us to stop being people who are constantly having to be fed by somebody else and able to feed ourselves so that we come in full of faith, full of God's spirit, full of his word to serve other people. God says, it can't be neutral. You must do something. In James chapter 2 and verse 14, it sounds so strong. I'll just read it. James 2 and 14 is a strong way to put it, but he says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? He said, Can that kind of faith save anyone? Can that kind of faith save anyone? I love that verse. Can it save anyone, he says. Notice that. Faith without works, or what we would say is faith without deeds. It can't save anyone. He's saying it's, it's, it's not either or. It has to be both and. Now, when we hear the word faith, here's what most of us think of, right? We think of a strong, deep trust in God. Well, let me help you understand genuine faith. Genuine faith combines deep trust in God along with consistent activity on the earth on God's behalf. It's both. 
He goes on in James 2, 17 and 18. I love this. He goes on in verse 17. And he says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you by my faith by my good works. Now, I understand the whole idea of faith versus good works is this age-old battle. It's 2,000 years old. But let me tell you why I think it's a battle. Because the flesh always loves to talk, but never do anything. Unless you think good deeds is just random acts. No, no, let me define good deeds for your life. Because it's not just doing good things for God. Here's good deeds. Good deeds, equal sign. Actions done in obedience to God. Listen, good deeds are not random. Neutral Christianity loves to bring God occasionally random gifts. That's not what God's looking for, folks. He's not looking for random gifts. He's not looking for just good works on your behalf or his behalf. He's looking for obedient gifts. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Ephesians chapter 2 addresses this idea of obedient good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and 8 9, and 10. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. He said, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Here it is. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things. Notice that. That's good things. That he planned for us long ago. What are you saying? Let me paint a clear picture of obedience because I I fully understand when people talk about obedience, they think God comes with this strong, deep voice and gives them this command. You better do this or else. Listen to me. Obedience doesn't look like that. And obedience certainly doesn't sound like that. Let me show you a few Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. This is what God's obedience or God's, your good works that God wants from you. This is what it really is. It's, let me paint this picture. It would be like God coming to me and saying, hey, Craig, do you know what this weekend is? Uh, Yes, Lord. um, It's the kickoff of Missions March. No, no, no. Do you know what this weekend is? Oh, yeah, Lord, it's it's the kickoff of a brand new month. Do I want to place Missions March? No, no, no. It's it's March 7, 2000. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is March 7, 2016. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Craig, do you you know what that means? No, I don't. Uh, Craig, thousands of years ago, son, I was writing important events in my day timer, my day calendar. And I got to March 7, 2016, thousands of years ago, and I wrote some things down. That's what he said, right? The good things prepared from the foundation of the world long ago. I wrote some things down for you thousands of years ago that, that I wanted you to do. And now, Craig, today is the day. And, and I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you for a favor. Son, uh, someone... This evening, they're, they're going to come to your house this evening. They'll come to your place, and, uh, and they're, they're going to speak some ill words to your face, speak ill of you right to your face. And, and I wrote down thousands of years ago that you would respond the way I would, with grace and mercy. And, and, and I want you to. I, I wrote it down. This is what I asked of you. And, and that's not all, my son. Based on your obedience to do that good work, after you've responded with mercy, I'm going to give you a prophetic word of encouragement to this person. And what you don't understand, son, is that I have been waiting literally thousands of years to give them this prophetic word that will change their life. And I wrote it down on my daytimer that if you would obey, you would do this for me. So obedience uh, to you, uh, to me, Craig, is, is here's what I'm asking. Will you do this favor for me. That's what obedience looks like. 
Obedience is not God coming to you and saying, oh, you better do this or else. According to Ephesians 2, it's God saying thousands of years ago, I wrote this down, Craig, and you're the one to do it if you'll just do this favor. God daily has good deeds. That's why you're breathing, folks. God has purpose. From the moment you walk out of those doors today, he has good deeds for you to do today. And and, and good deeds are not you just randomly giving him good actions. It's you being specific to give him the exact obedience he is asking for. Obedience is simply giving God what he asks for. Now, how many of us, if God personally personally came to you face to face and said will you do me a favor how many of us would say absolutely not none of none of us the point isn't oh i must do anything no neutral christianity is okay with just doing anything the missions mindset says every morning of my life i'm gonna wake up and say get it lord there are some things on this day thousands of years ago you wrote down that would happen and i'm gonna start my day not asking For what I need. I'm simply asking you. What do you need from me today? That friends is following Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer. Do you think that God's kingdom would aggressively expand here on earth? Until Christ returns. If we all woke up every day and asked him that one. Folks if we just did it for a month. We would not be able to. We'd have to bust out of this place. We would have to get a new facility. In just a month's time. You know, I take people on mission trips. I've done it the last few years, multiple continents. Let me tell you one of the hardest things that I do. One of the greatest challenges in my life is we go on a mission trip and we wake up for that 10-day mission trip every day at 6 o'clock. We do our devotion. We do our breakfast. We get in our huddles. And you know what happens? All throughout that day, every person on that mission trip knows their own mission. They're walking through, knocking on doors. What is the Holy Spirit saying? I wonder if he wants me to talk to that person. Should I minister to this person? And they're always knowing their own mission. Then what happens? They get on a plane, fly back across the pond, and they wake up here. And every morning they wake up and no longer they are on mission. They're just going to school. They're just going to their job. They're just going to their workplace. And they just totally forget that, that, that they are on mission. That the people at their job are no less important to God than the people in the Philippines that the people in their school classroom and their peers are no less important and less valuable to God than the people in Africa. Listen, God has called you to be on mission every day. He's called you every day to walk with a missional mindset saying, God, where you go, I will go. What you say, I will say. Lord, let my hands be the extension of your hands. Let my mouth be the extension of your words. Let my feet be the extension of your feet, God says. I must do something. A missions mindset. Now, I want to Share with you Galatians 3 because it addresses for those of us who take human effort a little bit too far. People say, well, the way to earn God's favor is good works. No, Galatians 3, verse 2, 3, and 4. This is what the scripture said. Let, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? What's he saying? I don't do my good deeds to earn God's affection or God's love. I already have that. I do my good deeds as my response to his love daily changing my life and heart for the better. Come on, somebody raise your hand. How many of you, you, God has changed your life for the better? He constantly changes my life. So God, I wake up every morning and I'm responding in obedience to good deeds because Lord, every day you're changing my heart. Every day you're changing my life for the better. 
He goes on in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Oh, I love this verse. It's one of the most powerful verses for me and so simple. He said, for when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What's important is faith expressing itself in love. God says to you today, how is your faith? How is your faith expressing itself in loving ways to the people around you? How is your deep trust in God combining with obedient acts on God's behalf? How is it transforming? transforming the people around you I must not be in neutral and I must must do something I pray you leave here today saying find out God I want to find out what you've set aside for me to do I want to press in I want to hear God's voice I want to have a missions mindset but number three not only do is neutrality never to be an option not only should I do something but also number three I will be aggressive I will be aggressive now what I want to do today to close out this message is I want to paint a vivid picture of this aggression that I believe God desires because I personally believe that how you see your enemy determines whether or not you're going to be aggressive about expanding God's kingdom or you're going to be apathetic. So I'm going to walk through scripture. That's all I'm going to do that talks about Satan. Satan is God's enemy. He's your enemy. And I want to talk about what he loves to do on the earth with those that you love, with you, And those that you talk to and interact with every day at your job that Christ has died for. Here's what Satan loves to do. Now, I want to tell you from the outset, I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I want you to see how aggressive the enemy is in his opposition towards God. And my prayer, my prayer, I'm telling you, this is my prayer, is that you see, as you see this happening to someone on this stage in just a few moments, to someone I love. God will begin to give you a picture of it happening to someone you love. And on this day, I'm telling you by the Spirit of God, from this day forward, you'll make the decision to never allow a single ounce of apathy in your life ever again regarding this battle on the earth that God has asked you to engage in. And that's seeing His kingdom come and His will be done. So the way I want to do that today is I want to do it by asking my wife, Meredith, to come up on stage. I want to ask her. And as I walk through these scriptures, it's very vivid about Satan's desire and role on the earth. I want to talk about things he loves to do. First of all, what does he love to do? He loves to tempt. He loves to tempt. Look at 1 Thessalonians. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, that is why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless listen to me church one of the enemy's greatest favorite things to do on the earth is to tempt he wants to come to someone like meredith and he wants to whisper and say meredith look at all this i can give you everything i can answer all the questions if you'll just sit right here in this chair i'll give you everything you want meredith i'll give you everything you desire oh don't go to god you'll be miserable if you follow god he's trying to take things from you god asking things from you but 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 i want to give things to you all you have to do meredith is just sit in this chair just 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 sit in this chair he begins to tempt just sit in this chair and before long you're sitting and you've discovered a place that god never intended for you to discover he loves to tempt but then that's not it after he's tempted and gotten you to sit in the chair he loves to imprison Look at the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26. He says, then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. They've been held captive. One of the devil's favorite things is to tempt someone into a bad position. They're vulnerable. 
They're open to the ploy and the attack of the enemy so he can make them slaves to do whatever he wants. He lures them to a spot that God never desired for them to find. And without even realizing, folks, look at this picture. The enemy subtly begins to bind the hands that God created to be free. Right there. Now listen, I would never... Let someone walk into my house and tie up my baby girl, tie up my baby boy, tie up my beautiful bride in front of my face. Then why would I ever be okay with someone spiritually trying to come into my daughter's life, come into my wife's life, come into my son's life and bind him or her in areas of her life? I want to say with prophetic authority this morning, and I just want to serve some notice to the devil. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that you got you got family members bound up in drugs and alcohol. It's not okay. I don't care what the enemies whisper. And I don't care how many years they've been bound up. I'm telling you by God's spirit, it is not okay. And the authority of God's word, it's not okay. It's not okay for them to be bound up, folks. It makes no sense to me to hate the Alabama Crimson Tide more than I hate God's enemy. Yet many of us in the South, we hate the enemy of our favorite football team more than we hate the enemy of our God. It's not okay. Satan comes in to tempt. Then he comes in to imprison, but he doesn't stop there. He, number three, loves to blind. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, 2 Corinthians, he says, Satan, who is the God of this age, your world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. If you think that at any point of my lifetime that I would be okay with someone breaking into my home, binding up my child, binding up my wife and putting a hood over their head to taunt my little girl and play with her inappropriately. You got me mixed up with someone else, folks. You want to see the ugliest, most aggressive parts of me? You start messing with my kids. Mess with those that I love the most. And you know what I think Jesus wants to know from us this morning is what he's saying related to the aggression of his enemy. He's looking at the same children for which he died. And he's going, Craig, how are you so okay with them being treated like this? How are you so okay with your your co-workers being treated like this. How are you so okay with, with seeing your neighbors being treated like this? Why do you keep walking past people, Craig, that I died for? They're in bondage. They're on their way to hell. And I put you on earth. And I'm waking you up every morning. And I'm putting breath in your body. And I'm giving you strength and so, so you can step in and release them into freedom. I purchased for them on the cross the spirit of the sovereign Lord's upon me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those that have been captain and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. God says, I want you to set them free. It's not okay. Why are you okay with seeing this happen to the people around you? He loves Satan to blind so that no one would ever see the face of God. But that's not it. He tempts them. He imprisons them. He blinds them. And then he loves to attack the heart. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, he said, You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts. Notice that. The hearts of those who refuse to obey God. 
He loves to attack the heart. I don't know how many hours I've spent across the table or across the desk counseling someone whose heart is being totally assaulted by God's enemy. And I just try to explain to them, listen, brother, you're not that weak and you're not that bad. Or listen to this couple, you're not that bad. You're not horrible. But the enemy just knows the best way to anger God is to attack those he loves. I'll have tears in my face, flowing down my face, streaming down my cheeks saying, listen, you're not that bad. I'm just telling you, God can't, the enemy can't attack Jesus. He's already been defeated. So the only way the enemy can attack God and, and anger God is to attack those he loves. And that's why, that's why, young man, you're, you have the temptation to look at pornography. It's just an attack against the heart. He's just trying to get you bound up that you'll never experience the intimacy that God desires for your marriage. He's trying to pervert everything good, godly, and pure in your life. He's attacking the heart. That's what the enemy loves to do. But then fifthly and finally, after he's tempted him, imprisoned him, and blinded him, and attacked the heart, he does the fifth and final one that... Well, there's two more, but the fifth one that I hate, the one that ticks me off the most, he comes to accuse. Revelation 12 and 10, he said, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It's come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan comes and begins to accuse. And after after the enemy tempts and after he imprisons and after he blinds, after he attacks their heart, then they're bound up and he comes to them and he begins to whisper, Meredith, you did this to you. I didn't do it. You did this to you. And this most is the one that ticks me off the most. Everyone else is stronger than you. Everyone else is strong. You're a terrible Christian. And he doesn't just attempt. He doesn't just accuse uh, a God uh, before God. He comes to our front doorstep and accuses us to our face. You're a horrible Christian. And I'm going to tell you, even though he's one who's sitting here tempted, even though he's the one who has bound him up and imprisoned him and blinded him, then he speaks in the ears words of no value and says, you're the one who got yourself there. And I'm just here to tell you the smartest thing to do in that moment is to remind yourself what God sounds like. And if you struggle to remember what God sounds like, you just pick up what he's already said. God has already spoken in his word. That's why the enemy's attacking you, friend. You're valuable. Don't you listen to the words of the enemy that you have no value and that God has no value on you. No, 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 no. That's why he's attacking you because there's value inside of you. Folks, listen. Thieves don't break into empty houses. He's attacking you because he knows the potential and the future of the seed of Christ in you. But he doesn't stop there. He tempts, he imprisons, he blinds, he attacks the heart, he accuses, and then he finally steal, kills, and destroys. As John 10 and 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. He then, after you're blinded, wrapped up in sin, he takes the axe and he begins to cut into your life to try to destroy you. Folks, I'm here to tell you, friends, I'm here to tell you. I sat just a few months back and received a phone call when I was in Tampa, Florida from a family member, friend of a family member of a young man who's 29 years old. 29 years old. And he died. He passed. He was in a concert. He was in a home on a night. He was certainly about his fruit, not living for Christ, not proactively pursuing Christ. And the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. I went to his funeral, and it was one of the most heart-wrenching things. Because as I sat there in that funeral parlor, once the grandma had left late at night, and everybody else had gone, his friends, his friends who were part of his team, his band, his 
posse, so to speak, they went out and they bought liquor and alcohol and cigarettes. And, and they brought him back in and they put him in his casket as that 30-year-old man was laying there. And they began to take pictures and Snapchat and laugh like life was a party. Folks, we are not on a playground. We are in a battleground. And the enemy of your soul is fighting for keeps for the one you love. It is time for us to wake up to a missions mindset. We, uh, I, hear, I hear in the spirit this morning a divine alarm. Do you hear it? I hear a bell going off in the spirit world that the bell is going off and saying, wake up America. Wake up. No politician. No politics and no, no institution is going to save our nation. It's time for the church to rise and to watch that father as he could get mad and upset of seeing what they're doing with his son's corpse. But the saddest is reality. He had to sit back and say, you know what? No matter how much I wanted him to be a different person, that's who he was. That had defined him. He's out to still kill and destroy. I don't think there's a parent in this room that would be okay if an enemy broke into your home and did that to someone you love. And I believe God is saying, okay then, Craig, why are you so okay with it happening to those I love? Why? I end with Matthew 11, 7, 11, 12. The band can come. Reading from the New Living Translation, he said, And from that time, John the Baptist began preaching until now. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Aren't you thankful you're part of a, a church that's growing globally? Kingdom is growing. It is. 30,000 a day in Africa, 40,000 a day in China. 1.2 million people have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ since we met last Sunday. We're a part of the winning team, folks. The kingdom of God is advancing. But notice... Even while it's advancing, there are those who are violently opposing it. Satan is after as many as he can. He's the devil seeking roaring, that, that roaring lion seeking the earth, devour, seeking to devour whom he may. And I'm going to tell you, I would never be okay with someone treating my wife this way. I would never be okay with someone treating my wife or my child this way. But there are people around you bound up right now. There are people in your family bound up right now. There are people on your job site that are bound up and blinded right now. And God is simply asking you a question today. What are you going to do about it? Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.